Hi, I'm Akko. And I'm Marcy. And welcome to another episode of the Color Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. Hey, colorful backgrounds. Um, yes, and so this week we actually had the exciting opportunity of having a conversation with Joe Amet Gill, the creator of Power Woo. and Magic Press. So yeah, so last week, you know, we read... Heartwood, non-binary tales of Sylvan fantasy. And so now we have the chance to talk to the person that really kind of put this anthology together. So Joel Gill is a queer Afro-Cuban cartoonist with disabilities, hopes, and dreams. She is best known for her award-winning publishing company, Power & Magic Press, home to the Power & Magic anthology series about queer witches of color and Heartwood, non-binary tales of Sylvan fantasy. When she's not making comics, lettering comics, or editing comics, she's barking loudly about Latin American history and cooking up new ways to give marginalized creators money. You can find her and all that she entails at Joamet Gill, spelled J-O-A-M-E-T-T-E-G-I-L, joametgill.com, and twitter.com slash joametgill, spelled similarly J O A M E T T. E G I L. <laughs> so yeah, and so it's, it's it was a really great interview, and we talked a lot about just like the comics industry and yes. just like the motivations behind these anthologies. And I really hope you all enjoy the interview because we had a great time. You all, you know, grab a snack, lay down, do you know, get comfortable, and yeah, we'll be right back with the interview. Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yes. Okay, everyone. We have our second Color Pages book club guest with us today, Joa Met. So, Marcy, right? We're so excited for it. Um, Marcy, you met Joa Met actually, what was it, two years ago? I did. I did. Yeah. So, on top of, you know, being the spearheader of like Power and Magic, which has just created so many amazing anthologies, I actually had an event at my old job about two years ago. It was basically like this three day, like, health equity summit that kind of explored, like, unlearning stigma, gaining magic. And so obviously with magic, I was like, Joel Met must be in attendance. And so we got the chance to kind of, you know, get to know each other over the three days in DC. And it was amazing. So I am so excited to kind of, you know, catch up and talk about all the things. Joel Met, how are you doing? I am doing great. And I'm super happy to get to talk to you again. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely like a very like, I guess, professional environment we were in the last time. So it's nice to just be like on the podcast and just like doing us. And it's just like, you know, doing us and being real. So yes, super excited to have you here. So before we, I guess, kind of go into all of the nitty gritty about like, just sort of like how you got started with Power and Magic and like Heartwood and all of that, just like, I guess as a little bit of an icebreaker, we have a quick question. So when you were growing up, what was your favorite comic slash cartoon? Yes. And especially we kind of want to know since you're, you identify as a queer Afro-Cuban cartoonist and publisher, what kind of inspired you to maybe jump into that field and can you remember like from your earliest memory oh yeah i can i can definitely remember because it was like <laughs> really it was really messy and dramatic and kind of like a very uh naruto crying in the playground i'm gonna be hokage one day <laughs> i already <laughs> love this <laughs> <laughs> <I'm living. laughs> 
<laughs> so, okay. So uh, I'll answer the first question first. Uh, my favorite cartoon growing up was hands down Sailor Moon. Yes. Was absolutely obsessed with it. It's a little bit of a... Uh, it's a little bit of a cliche answer, but it, but it's also like really understandable that so many of us identified with Sailor Moon because it's like this amazing thing that was really unique on television at the time in the early 90s where like you have this entire cast of like teenage girls who are just allowed to be girls like because pretty much pretty much everything else on tv at the time that had girls in it like i guess the powerpuff girls maybe um it was it was sort of this idea of femininity where it's like oh look they're they're girls but they're tough they kick butt right and you know and sailor moon uh is essentially a superhero she's a magical girl that's protecting earth so she kicks butt but like she cries about it and gets like distracted mm-hmm. by like boys and video games and like not really wanting to be about that life of having the entire world on her shoulders but right. you know she rises to the occasion it's just this really like it was a very special moment in pop culture i think where like girls got to see themselves not just as you know uh hashtag feminism hashtag tough but also like as human beings uh, mm. And getting to be like their full selves and like yes. seeing that like being girly uh, also didn't look just one way because there were five girls yeah. uh, eventually more and they all had very unique personalities, unique like senses of fashion and like fashion was a big part of the show because women had anything to do with making it. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, they actually <laughs> thought about like what does what you know Ray wears uh, say about Ray versus what uh, Usagi wears versus what Ami wears? Like mm. how do how do those things distinguish their personalities and like their worldviews and stuff like that? So um, yeah, it was incredibly ahead of the curve to be airing in the U.S. and it meant a lot to me. And this ties into um, the second question. It meant a lot to me as someone who was growing up in uh, poverty uh, in South Florida, Joe's origin story is just like flat out destitution, right? Mm. (laughs) And having, you know, animation and cartoons to turn to was a godsend. I was one of those kids that was definitely, you know, getting lost in my imagination, getting like daydreaming about living in a magical world because Mm. like my world sucks so bad. but yeah, it, it like, I also remember being under a lot of pressure uh, from mm-hmm. a very, very young age to be successful in school. Because, you know, my parents are immigrants. They both left school when they were in middle school because they couldn't speak English and they had some uh, learning disabilities and no one really cared because it's like oh it's these recent immigrant kids they don't speak english we're gonna be shitty about it and not give them resources mm-hmm. it, was also, it was also the 80s it was a different time <laughs> but, yeah. so ever since i was really little i felt like a lot of pressure put on me because if my family had left cuba to come to a whole new country then i better make the most of it i better mm-hmm. make straight a's i better go to college I better like become a doctor or a lawyer and make a ton of money <laughs> mm. <laughs> by my mama house and like all that stuff. And I remember like getting the very first chat about that. Like, Hey, you have to make straight A's so that you'll definitely get scholarships. Cause otherwise we can't afford to send you to college. I got that talk when I was six years old. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah. When I gave my mom like a report card in first grade and she's like, Oh, there's a B there. Uh, we need to talk about your future. <laughs> <laughs> 
But yeah, so like, I remember feeling super stressed out as a kid from a very early age being like, I'm like nine and I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. What the fuck, right? Ooh, uh, can man. I curse on this? Oh, yeah, please. <laughs> please. All right. <laughs> and watching Sailor Moon, like on top of everything that was great about it, what really touched me about it was that Sailor Moon was a girl who was under an extreme amount of pressure and ah. was being asked to do things that were like wild like oh you have to save the earth and you're like 13 or something and yeah and her reaction would be like to cry and Mm. to not want to do it and she was also like a character who wasn't very good at school she didn't have much self-control she would get upset over really small things she just like she was Mm. very like in her feelings all the time Uh, but the way that it portrayed her strength it sort of portrayed her strength as like the fact that she's a good person and that she Mm. cares about her friends and that her friends value her and her existence matters just because she's here and she's who she is and that meant a lot to me and like that that wasn't lost on me as a little kid I thought to myself well if Usagi can like suck at everything and yet she matters and people love her and she and like her heart is good then maybe maybe it's okay if like I never succeeded anything maybe it's okay if I try really hard and nothing happens maybe it only matters that I have a good heart and that Mm. I'm a good person that feeling that that show would give me as well as like just the feeling of wonder of like their transformation sequences mm-hmm. were like just this just this like beautiful elegant symbolism of transitioning from someone who can't to someone who can that hit me really hard and it and it hit me especially hard on one very specific day after school uh, <laughs> when i was mm-hmm. like 12 years old and I just started crying and crying and crying while watching an episode of Sailor Moon and I just thought to myself wow I'm old enough now to know that someone made this like mm-hmm. cartoons right. have come out of the ether and like <laughs> I, <laughs> I want to make other people feel the way that I feel right now like mm-hmm. this real this release of feeling understood of feeling like everything's going to be okay. And also like just a feeling of wonder and a feeling of possibility and a feeling of like greater than what's around you. Um, And that day, like I remember going to take my little baby shower and I was like crying tears in the shower. And I was like, I sat down in the tub and I was like, I have to devote my life to this cause. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how to draw or anything. I'm not an artistic child. I've never exhibited any like proclivity towards this. But like I know that you have to be an artist to do what Sailor Moon does. So by God, I'm going to become one. I'm going to start learning how to draw today. Oh, <laughs> I, I love, love this. that. Oh my God, wait. <laughs> <laughs> Holy shit, I'm, I'm having a moment. That's so beautiful. Oh, I told you I was dramatic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I also, I remember really loving Sailor Moon as a kid for the same reason. And yeah, it was so much fun to like spin and twirl and be like, moon, scepter, power. And then all of a sudden <laughs> you felt like you could save the entire world. And also Sailor Moon, she says this thing that's really great, which she's like, she always has like a spiel when she's about to like defeat the bad guy. She's like, you know, you have been breaking young girls' hearts or you are destroying feelings. And it's like all this stuff that you should Wait, what? Yeah. Yeah. Like, 
I should forget the name of the moon. I punish you. It's always like protecting young, vulnerable girls and being like, it's okay if girls love. It's okay if they feel. And you're like, oh, wow, this is, you know, it's not really, as you said, Jova, it's not that valued. And I remember one time I got in an argument. I don't, it was either, it was my cousins or my brothers or something. And they're like, how is, how is Sailor Moon going to run around in her skirt and her heels and fight people with her scepter? And I was like, okay, Goku ripped off his shirt and is like, <laughs> around with beams of light i'm i'm he should be dead too like don't get mad right. at Taylor Moon. at least she has clothes like come on <laughs> yes <laughs> and like friends to back her up like exactly goku will be goddamn naked fighting motherfuckers <laughs> in the desert and i'm just like this is ill-advised this is not intelligent i'm like you are literally sending magical beams of light at people i'm like you will want at least get like get a shirt at least like, at like least. you need some kind of armor goddamn Wow, that's so, uh, I love that. And honestly, I like, so real tea, I like kind of watched Sailor Moon like in sort of like a cursory way, but I never really like really sat down and like watched it like episode by episode. But like, I honestly might start because it's been coming up a lot recently in my personal life. And I'm just like, this needs to, this needs to happen. Everyone keeps saying that I need to watch the Japanese version though. It's like much more like authentic. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. well, the thing is exactly how you were saying it was like ahead of its time and it was very queer so the american version would suddenly and randomly cut episodes or change relationships between people from lovers to friends or family members to like cleanse it for the american family quote-unquote consciousness so that's why people are like watch the japanese version yeah, that's oh real. yeah there's literally like the final season of the series didn't even get dubbed in the original run. They just oh, did, wow. they just cut out the entire finale <laughs> season <laughs> of the show because it was uneditably gay. Uh, <laughs> I'm watching the original. I'm watching the original. I have to. Oh my god. <laughs> uneditably gay. That's um, I love it. Yeah, my shirt. I like it. Thank God. Make it, make it a crop top. I'll buy it. But um. So, so I guess after you had this like awakening when you were 12, I guess, I guess, how did you go about, yeah, like learning to draw and like kind of honing your craft in order to sort of make this kind of media? It literally just started out with me getting composition notebooks and being like, well, first of all, let's learn how to draw Sailor Moon. (laughs) (laughs) And just like tons of drawings with like of Sailor Scouts with their hands behind their back because fingers, I'm not ready for fingers and hands yet. That's (laughs) Mm -hmm. like next level. Uh, (laughs) And uh, so yeah, lots of fan art and like like writing little like scenarios that like I think the Sailor Scouts should get into and then like eventually coming up with my own characters and like the stories that I wanted to tell about them. I just have, I have tons of composition notebooks, uh, notebooks somewhere in my mother's house, like in Florida, just like taking up room in her closet. Recently Mm -hmm. she was like, okay, so like you're 30. Can I throw out the stuff in the closet that's yours yet? And I'm like, no, you're never throwing it out. It's it's (laughs) yours until you die. You have to keep it there. That's where it lives. (laughs) But um, yeah. And like, I, I, uh, at that point, I also decided, well, okay, so then I have to go to art school because, like, okay. I don't know, like, I knew so many people at that age who were already drawing better than me, and I'm like, that's okay, you know, I'm starting late. I just got into this whole drawing thing. I'll go to a school. They'll like whip me into shape, uh, and it's all it's all gonna be good. So yeah, basically, I 
taught myself a lot of things just by, you know, graduating from drawing the Sailor Scouts to then drawing original characters and then like trying to draw like things that I saw and drawing like Mm. portraits of people and doing shading and like stuff like that. And then going to art school, uh, though, I dropped out of art school after a year because I had an existential crisis where I was like, you know what? I'm kidding myself. Art's not a real job. I'm going to starve. So then I <laughs> transferred to another school, got a degree in psychology. Mm-hmm. And then after that, uh, I became homeless and oh. couldn't afford to go to any of my grad school interviews. And mm. to make ends meet while I looked for a day job, I took on commissions, uh, helping people make comics. And at a certain point, I was just like, you know what? is what I was supposed to be doing all along. I'm just going to mm. stick to it. I love the irony of I'll get a real job. Oh wait, this literally all of college and graduate school is a scam. Never mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, there's like, yeah, that is really ironic because you think, oh, it's it, it's too hard to like make a living in art. Mm-hmm. But uh the, the irony is that there are there are fewer gatekeepers to making a living in mm. art because mm. Because it's more of like an entrepreneurial thing where you just get up and you make stuff and you find clients. It's, it's a very freelance oriented thing. Whereas, mm. um, you know, the, the big jobs, the like, quote unquote, real jobs that make you money, they're all these academic hoops and yeah. like yeah. big money you have to spend in order to open the series of gates that allows you to enter that world of making big money. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's not all it's not all cut and dry. <laughs> barriers to entry you're right a lot of it is you usually have to take a test the gmat the mcat the lsat which costs money you have to go to school get the what Ooh, well (laughs) no that's so real and i I really i appreciate that sort of like confronting that narrative of like oh this is too hard like this isn't Mm. sustainable and it's like no like like i mean yes like there's like (laughs) Like everyone's experience is different, but it's not to say just because you have a particular interest that like, oh, this isn't like you can't make a living off of this. This isn't possible. I just uh, I love I love I love I just love I love that. (laughs) So I I actually wanted to know for you transitioning from being an illustrator to now also being a publisher and kind of getting all these people together to make a work for this one anthology and then you know the subsequent anthologies how did that how was that different between being an illustrator who's freelancing for their own work to becoming a publisher who's grabbing all these freelancers together for a work mm. Uh, the first thing that there's several things. Uh, the first thing <laughs> that popped into my head was that there's way more money involved <laughs> mm-hmm. on several levels. First of all, I even though I uh, was freelancing since 2010, I wasn't able to support myself by myself on mm-hmm. my entrepreneurial income until I started doing anthologies. So first off, it's a way more lucrative thing to be doing. <laughs> Uh, Mm. Just a little note in there. One of the open secrets in the world of comics is that if someone appears to be doing comics full time, there are two things happening. One, they're not. They have a day job as well. (laughs) And they're just busting their ass to do Mm. both and are just being like a champion. Or number two, they have a spouse that has a job. The, the ever elusive spouse. I never the thought ever about elusive that. spouse or wow. you know partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, or what have you, uh, mm. who is supportive and is like, yeah, I I know comics is wild and you, <laughs> it's 
not going <laughs> to make you like a ton of money at first. And, and I'm in it. I'll, I'll pay the rent and you make this happen. I but yeah, one of those. Clear. Yeah. <laughs> that that's basically uh, what the case was for me. My partner is the reason we weren't homeless anymore because we became homeless together. And then he was able to find a sustaining job. And that's how we live. And then, you know, I contributed what I could from freelance, but the lion's share of providing for us was was all them. And I decided, okay, I need a bigger ticket item to sell at conventions so that I can start supporting myself because dun dun dun, we broke up. (laughs) (laughs) We uh, broke up uh, in late 2015 and Mm -hmm. early 2016, January 2016, is when I decided to do Power and Magic Press. It was both the kick in the pants of, all right, I I need to make a big move. I can't just do the thing where I've been doing where I'm like, here's my portfolio. Uh, if you like it, call mm-hmm. me. You're like, <laughs> oh, are you looking for submissions? Oh, not not this one. Okay, maybe in a few months or maybe next time. Like I'm like, no, mm-hmm. I need to, I need to be in control of what's happening. Like mm. I, it, it's time to level up and doing an anthology is something that I'd always thought about doing. I'd uh, got really, really, really like hyped back in 2010. I think it was when Smut Peddler from Iron Circus hit Kickstarter and Kickstarter was mm-hmm. like this brand new thing we'd all just barely heard of. And I remember like in the early days when people would like gather around anthology Kickstarters that were happening on Kickstarter and just watch the number counter go up. Like literally people would just be live tweeting like, I'm looking at this Kickstarter and the number just went up by a thousand. And no, it just wow. went up by another thousand. And oh my God, look, and, like it was it was almost like this community event of like, look at how much money comics are making right now. Look at that number go. <laughs> Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm like, dang, anthologies look really cool. One day I'll make one. But it was one of those like, oh, you know, it's probably a big job. I'll do it sometime. I'm not going to focus on that right now. And then like mm-hmm. the big life shift of, oh, I don't have a I don't have this partner anymore. My life has to change very radically right now uh, mm-hmm. so that I can survive. And I thought this might be the time <laughs> to, yeah. to make a big move. Uh, and so I did, and I called it Power and Magic Press, and I'd been sitting on that name for forever. <laughs> Just like mm-hmm. Power and Magic, I like I like that combination of words. I feel like it embodies what I want to convey in my work, which is power dynamics and fantasy uh, mixed together. So I launched that, and when I say there's more money involved, I also want to make it clear that it's it's all relative because mm-hmm. let's. Let, let's compare the money involved to anthologies to say my how much money I'd be making if I were a psychologist. Mm-hmm. Anthologies make like dirt. They make nothing. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. but that just speaks to like mm-hmm. how little everything else in comics makes. Mm-hmm. Comics yeah. are, are not lucrative. And I can go on a whole tangent about that. So let me get back on track. In addition to it being uh, more sustaining <laughs> for me, it also allowed me something that I wasn't able to ever do w- outside of this context. And that is give other people money, like actually right. have the resources to, as I'm coming up, like bring as many people up with me as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the most important things for me when I decided to start Powered Magic was that I wanted to pay 
way more than what someone would expect from mm-hmm. a micro press run by one person with like no startup capital whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so that's that's always been like my number one priority. And yeah, on a more like on the actual nitty gritty of like what the work looks like, the big difference between publishing and actually just drawing and writing is that you can't be in your own head as much. You're sort mm. of, you're, it's not, it's not all about you. Like, it's not all about your vision. It's not all about mm. like, oh, well, this is what I like. And this is the story I'm telling. It's about my feelings, etc. You, you kind of take on the role of, um, one time I compared it to like sending a kid off to their first day of school. And you're sort of like making sure, like the kid's the one that's going to go to the school. They're going to do the homework. They're going to learn the lessons. It's their battle. But you're the one that's like, all right, are your shoes tied? Okay, your shoes are tied. Did you grab your backpack? Is your homework in there? Did you write your name on it? Mm. Come here, there's a smudge on your cheek. Let me take that off before anybody sees you. So it's very much a like a herding cat, a uh, making sure all the (laughs) all the papers are signed, making sure everyone's scripts make sense, making sure nobody used the British spelling of this and then the American spelling of it on a different page, just making sure Mm. everyone looks their best, does their best, and that what is coming from their heart, like the work that they're putting in, is the, the best version of what they could have possibly done for this gotcha. story. Uh, and then also considering like how you're packaging it, whose story are you going to put before and after each person's story to like really make their stand out or, or to, to mm. like really give the whole thing a flavor and then like what kind of cover image are you putting on the book what what's gonna give like like embody the spirit of everyone's contribution and make people want to buy it so that all their work wasn't for nothing uh Mm. it's both managerial because you're sort of like the helicopter making sure that you know everything on the ground is going smooth but it's also supportive because you want everyone who's bringing their individual voices to play to um to have the freedom to express themselves and the right. and like the support yeah. to not accomplish, like for example, not have me come in and be like, oh, this story's about this. Why don't you make one about this instead? Or like, I think mm-hmm. it would be cooler if you did this. Uh, it, it, it's about like finding people whose stories I, I already believe in. Like I see this and I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I get what you're doing. And I think it's important. Now I'm going to sit here and at every phase, I'm going to tell you, yeah, you succeeded at that thing you're clearly trying to do, or, oh, this thing you were trying to do, it's not coming across. Here's how you can help it come across. But always creator mm. first and like with what their emotional goal is first. Ooh, gotcha. I love this. Go on, go on, go on. <laughs> I was just, uh, the reason I am so fascinated with this specifically is um, I was actually at a comic convention for POCs at the Schomburg in New York. And a lot of the the black and brown artists talk about the lack of opportunities to sort of get the work out there and the lack of people in the publishing positions to sort of let their work flourish. So to see someone mm-hmm. on the other side who's saying exactly what you're saying of bringing people, of, of lifting while you climb is a really great thing and, and paying like an equitable wage because that's the other thing they talked about. So I would love to actually hear what you were saying about comics not making money and how that hurts POCs. But Marcy, I'm sorry, I cut you off. I want to. Oh, I mean, I also would like to hear that. So, um, <laughs> but, I was, but I was just going to say, it, it's so interesting that like, even with the motivation behind making 
the anthology you were like you know i want to like support people i want to make sure people are getting paid and even like in being in this publisher role it's like that similar like just like i find that that transition is like so fascinating to me and i just love that like in that process it's very much like you're very much like creator first and like just here for the people so i just want to be like yes snaps i love that but yes punning to aqua's question would love to hear about <laughs> that whole <laughs> oh gosh okay well pay in comics is bad and <laughs> the reason uh for that is many fold it's uh it's it's both it's okay so there are you've got marvel and dc right and they are you know the top dogs as far as uh how much money anyone is making in comics not just the top dogs in terms of people having heard of their characters and those being like cultural like shared cultural touchstones bat everyone knows batman everyone knows spider-man because their characters have that much cultural clout and have also been building that clout for nearly a hundred years they they can sort of make make deals like oh uh disney wants to purchase us or like time warner wants to purchase us or warner brothers i don't know what they are Mm. anymore but (laughs) at&t might be the company now it's it's a lot okay so because of that Marvel and DC also pay the highest page rates of anyone in comics. Uh, they can afford to pay people like three to four hundred dollars a page for Wait. for me. Wow. Yeah, wow. yeah. And now, if someone's getting paid that and is getting consistent work every month from Marvel, let's say, like they might have an exclusivity contract with them, which also includes health insurance, apparently. But. What? Um. Only if you have an exclusivity contract, which oh. very few people do. Uh, but yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that is, that's basically the scenario where by working on comics full time, you can be a middle class person, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like solidly middle class. And then it's all downhill from there. Wait. Everyone who works for any other company makes less, which uh, means there are a lot of low income people in the comics community. And again, that has to do with many things. Uh, For starters, very clearly, it's not a priority to pay people a living wage. I I feel like that's that's obvious because if it were, it would be happening. And that applies not just to um, the contractors who make comics, but also uh, employees of comics companies like the editors, the like design people, the people who get up in the morning and have to drive to the office every day to make comics, the comics Mm -hmm. industry go. And uh, there's been a lot of talk in comics right now about unionizing, so we'll we'll see where that goes. But um, the like, I think the like the lowest page rate in comics right now is probably like twenty five dollars a page or something like that. I forget if that's for pencils or for inking. Um, and it basically means that you could, like, let's say someone hires you to do a 100-page little graphic novel for their Mm -hmm. company, right? And the advance that they give you breaks down to about $25 a page. Mm -hmm. That would mean that you're making $2,500, right, Mm -hmm. to make this 100-page graphic novel. And that graphic novel will take you at least one year. Oh, boy. Wow. Oh, Oh, no. To make, realistically... If you are 
fast at drawing cartoons. <laughs> so if fast, it takes you a year. Yeah, if you're fast, it takes you a year. Oh um, my god, <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah. Uh, people underestimate just the passage of time that needs to occur for a drawing to occur. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> people like like that's that's a very big misconception in comics that like people who are good at drawing, it's like no sweat. They just kind of like wink at a piece of paper and a beautiful <laughs> page of comics <laughs> appears. Or like, oh, it's all digital now. You just click a button and the whole comic happens, right? It's whatever. But like, no. Like, even if you're an incredibly good artist, your hand needs to move physically across the page, back down, and to the like, there's hours that right. need to elapse, uh, and that's hours of your life. And people are making very few dollars for the hours of their lives uh, that they're spending mm -hmm. making comics in general. And uh, for, for a little clarity about that example, in publishing you uh prose writers for example and a lot of graphic novelists they receive advances rather than page mm -hmm. rates that's when the publisher says okay you're going to make money on this book when we break even on the cost of having printed it and having edited it and having done all that and then after we break even a mm -hmm. percentage of the sales of the book are yours and just so that you're not you know sitting around waiting to find out if you're ever going to see any money from this, we will give you an advance on those royalties that come after we break even. Mm -hmm. So once the book goes to sale, the publisher has to break even and recoup the advance that they gave you mm -hmm. before you ever see royalties slash profit from the sale of the book. And the idea behind advances isn't to pay you a living wage. The idea isn't to have a fair breakdown of money per page. The idea is mm -hmm. just a signing bonus, essentially. Uh, but, I like, got you. Like, here's a little money to just, like, confirm that you're ever going to see money from us. This is legit, you know? Mm -hmm. And the size of your advance depends on a few things. It depends on how well the publisher expects your book to, to sell. If they think they have a major hit on their hands, this thing is going to sell like cookies in front of a middle school. Like <laughs> it's going to be the next big thing. We're, mm -hmm. we're going to print, we're going to print a hundred thousand copies of this book to start. We're that confident about it. They'll give you a much bigger advance because mm -hmm. they're so sure that they're going to make that money back. And then some that it, that it's no sweat for them to like throw 60 to a hundred grand at you just to start working just on to start yeah. so like, at the very beginning of the process yeah usually broken down over like okay upon signing you'll get like 30 grand when we see the thumbnails you get another 30 grand when you okay. whatever. yeah so you don't disappear also <laughs> like you don't get a hundred grand and then like <laughs> move to mexico or whatever <laughs> like a joe and the scammer level move like yeah. <laughs> That's so interesting. So if they don't believe in your work, I guess don't believe is a strong word. They just wouldn't publish you at all. But if they don't think you're going to sell high, then your advance is rather low. So you could put all this hard work in, only get $2,000, and then say you don't sell that highly or even they don't think you're going to sell that high so they don't, what's it called, market you as, as they could. And you might just, the advance might be all you ever see. Yes, that's true. The advance might Ooh. be all someone ever oh. sees for making a graphic novel. Publishers, you know, and that's why publishers are so picky, because they're trying to avoid that. 
situation mm -hmm. because if if they never have to pay you any more money, that sounds like, oh, good for them. But that's not because they were only going to ever pay you a percentage anyway of a ah, much bigger okay. chunk that they right. are getting. So if you're right. not making money, it's because they're not making money. They mm -hmm. want to make money. So they want you to be successful just as much as you do because your success is their success. And that and that and that gets really complicated because sometimes someone will look at a book and be like, yeah, this is definitely not going to succeed because this artist isn't ready. You know, their art clearly isn't up to stuff. You know, we'll pass right now. But mm -hmm. then, you know, you have people who are like, oh, this isn't this isn't going to sell. No, we can't take that risk because like all the characters are black and like we've never sold a book that or, like we've never marketed one that's like. A, like an all black cast so like we don't think we'll do a good job so we're just mm. gonna pass and not take the financial risk it, it's every mm. every reason under the sun you can think of for why someone doesn't pick up a book is a reason why someone doesn't pick up a book and it yeah. all ties back to risk taking and not wanting to minimize it wow but yeah uh so there's that realm where like i think the average advance for like a graphic novel is like five to ten thousand dollars oh my god um, yeah uh, <laughs> and uh and then they're they're like there's the single issue world where you're not making a whole graphic novel you're like drawing in one issue of something or like a few issues mm -hmm. that like another person wrote or maybe you wrote it yourself sometimes but it's being released as floppies mm -hmm. those are those are paid on a page rate basis mm -hmm. so it's like for every page you draw you get a certain amount of money and there are situations where the creator still owns the copyright of their work, mm -hmm. even after they've been paid that page rate. And that's sort of like a negotiation of, well, we're not paying you much, but we're also not asking for your intellectual property rights. If, if we I were, see. we'd pay you more for the right to also then control what you're creating okay so it's okay. kind of seen as a trade-off marvel and dc own entirely owns the intellectual property rights to what people create and that's sort of the idea they're like well that's why we pay you so much money mm -hmm. uh, because it's it's ours yeah so then page rates are where it gets real wild because normally after or there are situations where if it's work for hire, which means you don't own the copyright to what you're doing, the page rate is the only money you're ever going to see. So if you draw, Ooh. if you draw like, I don't know, if you draw an issue of the Steven Universe comics, for example, and get paid like 30 bucks a page or something to draw them. And then that issue of Steven Universe, like, I don't know, like, it, it, it strikes gold like no other issue ever has. It, it gets Eisner nominated. Like, it's wild. This mm. is the best. It can't, like, this is a transcendent issue of, like, a licensed comic or whatever. No matter how well it sells, you're not seeing any more money. Oh, my, uh, what? <laughs> yeah. You just, oh no. you got paid already. Wow. You're done here. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Comics oh. is wild, you guys. That is so interesting. Oh, wow. Because that, that was like going to be my question. I was like, okay, what if it like super exceeds expectations? And it's like, oh, but like you already got paid. So like, we don't care. It's like, oh, shit. Okay. Damn. Yeah. Wow. So then I can totally see why you would go for a quote unquote safe bet like DC or Marvel when you've put your work into creating art right because you're like okay at least at the very least this is gonna be steady and hey maybe if i become exclusive i can get health care you know like, like it seems like a steady bet so i can see why it's like 
it might be more tempting for you to go for that job. Dang, this is, I'm learning a lot. I, I do have a question though, just, I guess like circling back a bit to um like Power Magic Press and like getting that started. I'm kind of curious what the motivations were behind the anthologies that y'all have all done today. So like, you know, the Queer Witch Anthology, Heartwood, mm. Immortal Souls, like I'm, I'm curious kind of what led to those like specific themes and yeah, just like that whole process. All right. So in order, the theme for Power and Magic was almost an accident uh, <laughs> because <laughs> What I wanted, what I originally wanted to do was simply a fantasy anthology by women of color. That, mm-hmm. that was the basic theme. Um, and while I was getting all the submission materials ready and like writing up my call and being like, all right, this is, it's got to be worded right. I'm, I'm, I'm debuting. I'm going to announce this to everybody. Nobody knows I'm working on it yet. This is exciting. I was looking at Twitter and I noticed that it was Witch Sona Week. And my timeline was just covered in people being like, this is what I would be like if I was a witch. And no, this is me as a witch. And this is me as a witch. And I was like, I love Witch Sona Week. I love witches. I identify mm. with witches so much. That's so great. And that's when I thought, wait, why is this whole book? Why don't we <laughs> make this whole book just about <laughs> witches? Because uh, right. like, I really do. like. I've always identified with that idea of like the not just like a powerful woman like a magical girl but also kind of like an outcast unburdened woman Mm. um because you know nowadays we can be like oh witches that's so cool or that's so new age you know when people like practice paganism and stuff like that but the like the idea of the witch was uh like a frightening thing like it's it's a woman who wasn't trusted because she was powerful and independent. Mm-hmm. And I thought, so basically like being a woman of color, uh, mm. <laughs> uh, like, so, like a woman who you intentionally want to keep down because there's a power structure you're trying to maintain, but, but, she, but the witch cannot be contained. That's why it was like, Oh, you know, we'll know she's a witch if she doesn't drown when we mm. throw her into the sea so it's like okay so even when you try to destroy a witch a true witch cannot be destroyed it's true Mm. and i feel like there was definitely an element of disregarding the patriarchy that made people fear and sort of hate witches like the idea was usually they were older and unmarried i know oh terrible like they didn't marry at 21 (laughs) (laughs) so there was definitely that sort of disregard for the patriarchy which is also very empowering but also made them outliers and sort of targeted yeah 100 percent. and and yeah just also like posing a challenge to um sort of the power structures that people were supposed to respect like right. oh when you're sick you're supposed to you're supposed to pray about it uh but what's this this like weird ladies putting like a weird salve on your arm like what kind of what kind of magic like, <laughs> is that it's like well it's science but you know <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah and like yeah and i'm like how can we dismiss the patriarchy harder than by making all these witches gay. (laughs) 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 So that's how the concept for power magic was born. 
And now the concept for Immortal Souls uh, is very interesting. The Immortal Souls anthology uh, is unique in that there was no call for submissions for it specifically. Everyone in Immortal Souls actually applied to be in the original Power and Magic, but I didn't put their stories in. Mm. And these were all uh, runner-up stories that I wanted to or would have included if A, I thought I could raise like double the money and <laughs> B, if they weren't all so death and spooky <laughs> oriented. Because I thought, okay, if I put enough of these in, then there's going to be an additional theme of like like death and zombies and like stuff like that because a lot of those people went in that direction uh, with the witches. And I realized, hey, y'all could be your own book. <laughs> So, oh. uh, so work started on Immortal Souls before pa- the first Power Magic even went to Kickstarter. So oh, that, so that you was, already knew. You were yeah, like, already knew. <laughs> that, that's already. I, I kept thinking to myself, oh well, you know, if Powered Magic succeeds, then we can make Immortal Souls. But then, as it got closer, I was like, when Powered Magic succeeds, <laughs> we're on. gonna make Immortal Souls. <laughs> <laughs> And it did succeed. And then Immortal Souls succeeded. Uh, and everything was great. <laughs> so yeah, uh, Immortal Souls is is basically, uh, I decided to, to sort of treat it as an interlude since it wasn't like an all new call uh, for submissions. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I call it like the Lion King one and a half of <laughs> uh, the Power and Magic series. <laughs> Got you. Wow. Okay. And, and with Heartwood? And with Heartwood, I sort of was starting to, like after the success of these two Kickstarters, I'm thinking to myself, okay, I really like how all these like queer women and like woman aligned non-binary people and like all these people are like super excited about power and magic. They're seeing themselves and it's really touching and it's really exciting. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, so I want more and more people to like have comic where like they see themselves. And that... And, and, and it's not entirely like selfless either because I am non-binary. I'm a non-binary woman mm-hmm. and I'm like, okay. So I created a book where I could see like this aspect of myself represented by like tons of people. Here's mm-hmm. another aspect of myself that I'd love to see represented more that I don't see very much. And it, and it really stood out to me because, you know, when I started making the anthologies, I started like being more more active and like following people on Twitter who I'd like to work with in the future and like sort of collecting like artists names being like, yeah, this is a thing. This is happening. People will give me Mm. money. I I know now. So now I just have to come up with a list of people that I want to give money to. And I was noticing that I knew a ton, like a ton of non-binary creators, Mm. but I like couldn't think of like, I couldn't think of like anything I'd ever read that had non-binary people. In mm. it. I was like, wow, that's wild. Okay. So <laughs> then I I decided to, you know, I went to Google and I'm like, okay, let me Google non-binary anthologies before I, de- I fully develop like what this one, what I'm going to ask for so that I don't step on anyone else's toes. Like what other non-binary anthologies have happened and what were their themes so that I can make sure mine is different and bring right. something new to the table. And there weren't any. Well, mm. there weren't any, not not prose, not comics, not, Damn, not poetry wow. of exclusively wow. non-binary collections. There just aren't mm. any. <laughs> um, wow. So I was like, 
okay, so I can do literally whatever. (laughs) (laughs) And this will be the first thing ever. And that was really exciting. And I decided that the that the theme for this one would be forests and like fantasy stories that are very like folktale and like uh, through the woods, like lesson learned kind of Mm -hmm. stories, mainly because, I mean, aside from the fact that I'm already on a trend of all of Power Magic Press's books are, or at least, you know, for a while, we're going to focus on speculative fiction, you know, fantasy, horror, sci-fi, et cetera, because that's what I'm into. And what's the point of running a publisher if you can't make it whatever you want? (laughs) 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 So like, I feel like really strongly connected to nature. Like growing up, it was mainly the ocean because I grew up in Miami and we didn't have a ton of trees or a ton of forests or anything. But like, I've always felt like at my most peaceful, at my most, everything is okay. Everything is as it should be when I'm in the ocean. And I, mm-hmm. and I discovered, sort of rediscovered that feeling again, living in the Pacific Northwest, just visiting the forests. I studied psychology at the Evergreen State College and Evergreen is is famous for sort of uh, like the majority of the campus grounds is a rainforest, temperate rainforest. And the school is located right in the middle and you can like walk off of the beaten path of school in any direction and you're walking into the woods. Wow. Yeah, it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous place. And yeah, like there's, there's just this serenity and this sort of, uh, this sort of grounding that happens for me at least, and I think for a lot of other people, uh, when they're in nature, where not only are none of the distractions of like man-made things anywhere around you, like you don't have your TV, you don't have your phone, well, you might have your phone, but <laughs> you, know, you, you don't like, you don't have the noise of cars and like all that stuff. Mm. It, it, for me, it sort of makes me feel like, like it's the truth. Like this is me, mm. I'm made of meat. Mm on my hands and on my on my shoes this is all I am I am like these trees I belong here fully I am what I am fully here and to me that felt really connected to the concept of gender and feeling just fully in yourself and feeling like you can fully sort of embody whatever it is you are, regardless of like the man-made constructs that have been designed to put you in this box or put you in that box. Like almost like the forest knows your gender. You can't lie to the forest about your gender because Mm. you're not anything except what you were born as in the forest. You have Mm, nothing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like I'm getting really emotional right now. (laughs) (laughs) I like the theme of this book is like so close to my heart. And then of course Mm -hmm. there's, you know, your basic like, the whole point of a fairy tale is like a lot of them are cautionary or a lot of them are like supposed to be educational. You go in and when you come back out, you're different. You're not the same person. You've grown or you've changed. You've transitioned from someone who didn't know what was in those woods, didn't know what was in the dark. And now you're changed because now, you know, you Mm -hmm. went and you confronted it. So, yeah. So I put that idea out there and a ton of people were like, yeah, that sounds dope. Uh, so, <laughs> so I really, I really had my pick of the litter for for this book. There were way too many applications. So like, yeah, every single person in here is ridiculous. Like they're all so amazing, and I'm so proud of all of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Heartwood, 
part was really important to me. It's also like, I also feel like it represents like a, like a level up in our printing game. Cause it's also mm-hmm. the most beautiful book. Oh, we've made so far. It's got like gold foil pages on the edges with like a shining golden heartwood title and like it's hardcover. There's just a lot. There's a lot about this book, as you can wow. tell. <laughs> wow. That's so lovely. I also agree that the forest has something healing or something of a sanctuary about it. I think it's it's this odd feeling of you're not so important, but that almost makes you feel better. You can just be who you are and everything else is just what it is. And it doesn't have to have rhyme or reason or make any sense. And it's perfectly fine. But actually going along with that kind of concept, I noticed while reading Heartwood that a lot of the stories did kind of subvert tropes or dismantle them or just, you know, ignore them completely. And it's interesting that you said earlier that you did a podcast about tropes and everything. And I wanted to kind of know your thoughts on the idea of tropes story tropes and story structures and dismantling them or keeping them or if we should just if they're actually holding us back or if they don't even work for us if we're POCs or non-binary see I think the answer or my answer to that question is um tropes are neither good nor bad tropes serve and and there are tropes that serve some stories and there are tropes that wouldn't serve the same story so I think it all really depends on what a writer's goal is or what a storyteller's goal is like do you are you sitting down and thinking okay I'm gonna retell Little Red Riding Hood but I'm gonna turn it on its head in a way that it's never been turned on its head before even though Little Red Riding Hood has had so many different (laughs) retellings at this point then then you're not going to be served by Mm. the traditional tropes and the go-tos. You really have to up your game here. You need to find out what you want to challenge and how you want to challenge it. But if your goal when you sit down is, I want to like distill little, Little Red Riding Hood into like the most pure Little Red Riding Hood experience it can be. I want it to be so Little Red Riding Hood that people think this is the original one. Like it's Come the on. tropiest <laughs> fucking Little Red Riding Hood. Then you're going to want to look at tradition. You're going to mm. want to look at what it is, what essential tropes make Little Red Riding Hood the story we all think of. So yeah, I think I think everything is a tool. And I think uh, <laughs> I was just thinking to myself, uh, I was building an Ikea shelf recently. I promise this is relevant. Um, <laughs> so I was building the shelf. And as I start unpacking and I take out the little the little tools and little screws, I realized in the instructions, they wanted me to have like a real ass screwdriver, not like a, mm. like a little L wrench. And I was like, what? <laughs> I was expecting to just need to use the little, the little Allen wrench because that's how a lot of their furniture is built. And I was like, damn, I don't own a screwdriver. And I was determined to build this thing. I'm very process or very goal oriented. Mm. Like now that this is out of the box, it has to be built. Or I'm going to go crazy. So I, go around my house and I start looking at objects in my house and trying to think what could work as a screwdriver that isn't a screwdriver. (laughs) Okay. And I found one that worked after trying a few different things. And that thing was a pair of tweezers because each side of a pair of tweezers is a flat metal head. And I was able to straighten those out and use the use or make it into like a right angle so that one side of it was like a crank mm-hmm. and the other half was the flathead screwdriver equivalent that would help me put the shelf together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is the most MacGyver. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I I'm very I'm very MacGyver about <laughs> about life. Yeah. And I I think I think part like in it was in large part growing up with like very little mm-hmm. and just having to be like, well, I need to just make something work because I'm not just gonna sit here and not do something. <laughs> because there's no mm-hmm. point in that. Yeah. So yeah, so like I don't really to, to tie those two together, I don't really think of it as like, oh, like these tweezers are meant to tweeze. And now, but I don't need to tweeze, I need to build a bookshelf. So does this serve me? It's like, well, it might not serve me as good as this would, but if I can access it and I can transform it into something else, Mm. then I can achieve something with it that I didn't think about before. That's true. I like that that answer. Wow, that was so... Like you really took us on a journey there. Like I was like, okay, <laughs> build a shelf. Like, okay, I was like, I was like, just, like lift up my seatbelt, see where we're going. Because I was like, wait, that is so, wow, huh? Okay. Yeah. I, I, oh wow, I love that. I love that. But I also, so I guess speaking of you know like when in depth about sort of all, all of the different anthologies that y'all have made to date, I'm kind of curious. Like, do you have like a let's not say favorite, but I guess more so just like a particularly resonant story that's like mm. kind of stuck with you from those anthologies. It could be either from Heartwood or just any of the Power of Magics. But yeah, just any story that's like kind of, yeah, stayed with you. Oh yeah. I, oh my God. <laughs> so many. <laughs> um, I'm going to, I'm going to give a, I'm going to give a top three. Okay. okay. Uh, so Ooh, I love it. the first, and I'm going to give them in chronological order. The Ooh, first nice. one that like really just, Lord me uh is from uh the first power and magic and it's called your heart is an apple it's by uh nivedita sekar and it yeah for for the for the folks at home it is about a girl who recently had a breakup and she goes on a series of online dates to just Hmm. kind of get back out in the field and uh, no description I can give of this is going to give it justice because it's a very visual journey. She, she goes on dates and she's sort of, it's sort of hard for her because right now her heart is literally an apple. There's an apple mm. inside oh. her chest because the person she broke up with was an evil queen who took her heart and oh. left a poison apple in mm. its place. And so she goes on these dates and they're all very, you know, contemporary seeming dates, but the next person she goes on a date with is is someone who's, you know, very quiet and very sleepy and has been asleep for a very long time and maybe needs some more time waking up before they're ready to pursue something. And then the next person she goes on a date with, her her legs used to be a tail, but you know, now <laughs> she kind of walks with a cane and mm-hmm. her legs hurt like knives with every step uh, she takes. Wow. And uh, there, and it sort of goes on like that until she sort of finds someone who sort of tells her, or she meets she meets a witch essentially, and she tries going on a on a date with that witch, and she finds out that they really connect and they have a lot in common, and uh, their love connection makes the uh, thorns that shield the witch's face and body from sight start mm. to spread and bloom with flowers. Mm, through, oh my gosh. through the power and sacrifice of the heart of the apple in the main character's chest because she mm. takes she takes out her apple heart and lets the witch eat it 
And there's a, it's clearly, you know, like a, like a sort of reimagining of classic fairy tale princesses um, Mm -hmm. as people going on dates. And, and it's so beautifully illustrated. And there's a page in it where Snow, the main character, and the uh, Little Mermaid stand in, they're walking together into the ocean uh, for a swim. And Snow tells uh, the Little Mermaid, sometimes my apple heart exhausts me. And the Little Mermaid says, I could change it back to flesh here in the sea, but it would be like my legs, sometimes flesh, but sometimes a knife. And then Snow thinks about it for a couple panels and just leans back and says, I don't want my heart to be a weapon. Mm. Oh my God. I just feel personally attacked by that line. (laughs) (laughs) Y'all carry on. I'm just, oh, wow. Just swimming in the feelings. My God. That's Steve. Yeah. I don't think we think about the way. Oh, yeah. I'm going to need a moment too. I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I've read it a million times because I edit it and I still need a moment (laughs) after reading it out loud. (laughs) I was thinking lately about the way when we we date or even when we have friends, the way emotions can become something we use to harm other people. So hearing that line and kind of the succinctness of it, I'm like, hmm. I should probably learn that lesson and do something about it for myself. Or I could do <laughs> <my> ice cream. <laughs> you could do both. Both can happen. <laughs> uh, um, and so then after after that book, what was your other two? And then my other two are see the first and last stories in Heartwood. The very first one in Heartwood is called uh, The Biggest Dog You've Ever Seen. Yeah, I know y'all said that you read that one recently. Uh, Yeah, I read the book recently. I I love this one so much. Um, The art is so, it kind of reminds me of, um, I don't know what to compare it to, but it feels very Swedish, if that makes sense. Like, it just feels very, like, soft storybook, like, Mm -hmm. old school fantasy to me. Mm Mm-hmm. And like, I love how just simple and emotionally pure it is. Someone is grieving a loss. And it's this quiet story where just some kind bystanders decide to accompany this dog to the top of the mountain where they're going to mourn their master. And on the way, you get all these glimpses into how like textured this fantasy world is. You've got like Mm -hmm. a, you've got a living river. You've got like herds of unicorns. You've got all this stuff. But it, it's just sort of this beautiful trek through an impossible world where someone just wants something very, very simple. They just, they just want to be alone with their feelings for a while. Mm. You know what I really liked about that story myself was the idea of a whole family or like a group of people varying ages going on a journey together. Because usually, you know, um, a lot of stories you see, it's like, Oh, you got to be like from the age range of like 12 to 25. And then after 25, yeah. I guess <laughs> don't go on adventures. But I was like, this is cool that the whole family was just like, all right, off we go. Help this dog mourn. Yeah, I love that about it, too. It was um, it was one of the things that really drew me to it when it was just a um, a text pitch that I was trying to or that I was uh, or when I was just narrowing down text p- pitches. The fact that it was a whole family going on an adventure. That's what really hooked me. Mm. And apart from the fact that it's like, there's just a giant dog. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thanks. I want, I want creatures. I don't have to worry about. 
<laughs> to right. show up in all of these. That's a really touching one to me. And the way that the way that the author illustrated the dog is just so beautiful. It's almost just the dog is almost just like a blank white space with a little mm. bit of charcoal feathering to yeah. just show you the edges of the dog. Mm-hmm. And now the yeah. last. Oh, go on, Marcy. And I, I was just going to say, yeah, like, I remember from that story. So, uh, yeah, I also loved the fact that, like, a whole community was just like, well, ah, I guess we're going on an adventure. Like, they all just, like, jumped in. But, like, <laughs> more than that, I loved sort of the depictions of, of like, sorrow in it. Because, like, there were so many close-up panels of, like, the dog's tears. And just, like, you could just see so much emotion in it. And I was just like, wow, this is, like... I mean, it was literally like the first story of Heartwood. So I was like, okay, let's like see what this is about. I was like, well, damn, I'm just like (laughs) all of the emotions. Yeah, it was just, yeah, it was such a, I don't know. It was just, it was, mm, I really like that one too. Uh, That, that's something that, um, that I get feedback on a lot. People, people really like it when an anthology has sort of an emotional pace to it as you move from story to story. Real talk, uh, one of the things I was most excited about when I started making, or I decided, okay, I'm gonna make anthologies is finally I get to sort of like vicariously fix all the things I don't like about other anthologies. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Just to be like vaguely salty. Uh, And one of the things was always like, there seems to be no rhyme or reason to like why these stories are in any particular order. So I get like really wild about sitting there and I, I get like like the post-it notes and like the the red string and I'm like, okay, but why should this one go before this one? And should this one be in the middle or the end? What's gonna start it and what's gonna end it? That matters so much. <laughs> so the Last one is the third one I'll mention. It's called uh, Return. The, the The title is written in Hebrew and I believe it's pronounced Shiva, but I could be wrong. But yeah, they also provide the translation, which is Return. And yeah, uh, again, for the listeners, uh, this one is about an older non-binary person who returns to the site of a magical event they experienced as a child in the woods. Um, and as they're making their way there, they reminisce about that night it was a night where they sort of uh panicked about the fact that they were gonna have a bar mitzvah soon and that it meant uh their transition from boyhood to manhood however the character does not identify (laughs) as a man Mm -hmm. so that was very scary and so they ran away into the woods and while they were there they're sort of greeted by by angels by uh seraphim and they kind of just take the character in uh for the holiday and they go through the sukkot rituals and they just let the character rest and sleep and and feel at home and the next day when the when the character wakes up all of that is gone the search party that was searching for them finds them and they're never they live their life pretty unsure about whether it was a dream they had or if it actually happened. And so this is them in their older age coming back to the site and leaving an offering 40 years later. And they're sort of surprised and happy to find out uh, after they leave the offering that, that the angels return, they appear and they greet them and they refer to the character as Ofra, which is uh, the character's chosen name, not the name they were given at birth. Mm. So it's sort of transcendent story of, your identity is so real 
that even God acknowledges it, Mm. that that was just really powerful to me. And it felt like a really good note of like divine truth about yourself Mm. to to end the book on. Hmm. So you did really think about the ordering of these books. I did. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. Well, Jomet, I am, I mean, that was just such a, like, like, I feel like I should have more words, but I'm just like kind of sitting in the things. Um, Cause yeah, like I remember that story as well. Like the very last um, page, there was like this picture of, um, I want to say it was an owl that was like kind of flying into the distance. And it was just like such a like beautiful way to end it. And yeah, like I already, I, I, I admittedly didn't have that interpretation of the story until you sort of said it out loud. And now I'm just like, okay, I'm definitely going to go back and reread it because like there were some tidbits here that I definitely, <laughs> some nuances that I didn't catch completely. But um, same, but yeah. Same. Oh my gosh. Love it. So we just want to thank you so much for, for this conversation. It was like extremely interesting. I guess just like, you know, were there any sort of like final thoughts that you had or like, you know, any next steps for you? Anything? Mm, upcoming to, projects? Yes. Like kind of leave our listeners with? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> first, everyone should go to powerandmagicpress.com. Not only can you find all our books there and read all, read about all our books there, you can also subscribe to the Power Magic newsletter, which is the best way to keep track of everything we're putting out and everything that's happening, apart from following us on Twitter at twitter.com slash power and magic PR. What we've got coming up in October is the Kickstarter for Power and Magic Volume 2. Yes. Yeah. And that's, so that's almost done. Uh, And the Kickstarter is right around the corner. And we, uh, our goal is to not only print uh, Volume 2, but also get enough money to reprint Volume 1 because Mm -hmm. that has been sold out for a minute uh, and <laughs> we could definitely use some more uh also now that now that our print game is up i'm like we can print it even better than we did the first time but yeah so that's coming uh and in the pipeline is manana latinx comics from the 25th century which is our first non-fantasy book it is science fiction and uh sort of speculative fiction about the future and it's what it says on the tin, just like all our books are. It takes place in the 2490s, roughly a thousand years after Columbus's famous landing in the Caribbean, which mm-hmm. transformed the Western Hemisphere and probably the entire world forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it gave birth to not just um, colonialism in the West and the transformation of so many different indigenous people's realities and lives for the next 500 years. It gave birth to the concept of race. It gave birth to Western slavery. It gave birth to capitalism. It gave birth to everything that makes Latin America and the West what it is. And this book is exploring what the West will be like in 500 more years following that anniversary huh i will be tuned in i will be trying to get all of my hands like my hands on all of these things that sounds amazing do you have like a projected i guess like release date or is it kind of more in the the planning stages at the moment um everyone's writing and the kickstarter is set for may 2020 got you got you you hear huh. the listeners, May 2020. 
Yes, and we could definitely do right. We could like everyone get information, and we could definitely, you know, (laughs) we can do like a, you know, a reminder. Um, yeah, when these things drop, because yeah, we absolutely want to keep the support up. So thank you so much. (laughs) Oh my gosh! Well, Joe, thank you so much. I am just so enthralled by this conversation. I like really enjoyed sort of getting the chance to talk to you again and reconnect. And yeah, I'm just like so happy to see all the ways in which power magic has like evolved even since you know two years ago so Mm. like yeah just like keep doing this work because this this shit is so important like my god well thank you so much i really appreciated reconnecting with you too and akko is a pleasure to meet you you too this was lovely (laughs) 